uh, challenge you with something as we get ready to get into this. As we get deeper and deeper into 2 Samuel, you may start to recognize some of the images in this video because they're all images of, they're all scenes from things that happened in 2 Samuel. So uh, I know it's just a bunch of pictures to you right now, but uh, hopefully we can color in these pictures for you and you'll begin to see, oh yeah, that's when Absalom's hair gets caught in the tree and not, not to be a, a spoiler alert, but anyways, that actually does happen. Someone's hair gets caught in a tree and I <clears throat> hate it when that happens. But anyways, we're in 2 Samuel. <laughs> that, I don't have that problem in case you're wondering. So uh, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 1 and uh, just a little bit more review. We, we kind of came out of second, or 1 Samuel where David was finally getting back on track with the Lord, there was some time where he was really, we didn't know what he was doing, but he finally gets back on track with the Lord and he's on his way back to Ziklag and he finds the Amalekites had taken over his town or destroyed his town, taken the women and the children and the livestock and he had to fight them off. That was, that was one of the scenes there towards the end. And while that was happening, Saul <clears throat> was losing this battle with the Philistines where he finally, he asked his armor bearer to, kill him and his armor bearer wouldn't do it so he fell on his own sword and that really is the very end of that chapter we pick up in second samuel and just give you a little overview is this is also broken up to three parts we've got david's triumph we have david's transgressions and we have david's troubles we're going to see that in three different sections and what you, what i want you to know about david is he's the second most mentioned or talked about person in the bible the second most talked about, second only to Jesus. 62 chapters are devoted to David in the Bible. Now to put that into perspective, when you look at people like Abraham, the father of our faith, right? Abraham and Joseph, who went to Egypt. Joseph, those two together have 14 chapters. Jacob, uh, who later became known as Israel, he, or is. Israel, that became known as Jacob, has 11 chapters, and Elijah less than 10 chapters. So David has 62 chapters just about him. And here are some phrases that can kind of sum up his significance, all right? We've got the city of David, we've got the star of David, the lineage of David, the seed of David, the house of David, the tabernacle of David, the offspring of David, and the root of David. These are all phrases found in scriptures about David. He is a very significant person in the Bible. God even prepared him for the palace on a shepherd's hill, which we get to the significance of that later. And two times in Scripture, David is called a man after God's own heart, or in another way of saying it, after God's own purposes. So that's where we pick up. That's just a, a slight overview there. We're going to pick it up in verse 1, 2 Samuel. It says this, After the death of Saul... David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed at Ziklag for two days. And on the third day, a man with torn clothes and dust on his head came up from Saul's camp. Now, David didn't know yet about Saul. Sometimes it could look like that just based on how it's written. David didn't know yet. And he didn't know what news was coming, but the fact that he had torn clothes and dust on his head was, new, uh, was indication enough that it was bad news. It was a little, little bit of theater, so to speak, for us, but for them it was a common expression of grief in those times. So it says this going on in verse 2. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David asked him, where have you come from? He replied, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. 
What was the outcome? Tell me, David asked him. The troops fled from the battle, he answered. Many of the troops have fallen and are dead. These are Israelite troops. He's, he's, this is not good news. Also, Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. This would have hit David pretty hard if for anything else but because of Jonathan. Jonathan was his dearest friend. And this is the first time he's hearing it. Now, what I want to do before we get into the rest of this, I want to, just as we saw in that review, just kind of remind ourselves of David's context here. This Saul is a man who for over 10 years was chasing him down and trying to kill him uh, and, and failing at it, but making David's life a living hell. This is Saul, okay? This is who he's hearing died. And so with that in mind, let's look at the next verse. Verse 5, David asked a young man who had brought the report, how do you know Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Now, personally... If I didn't know any better, I would think almost there may be a, just a little bit of hopeful anticipation here. Like, how do you know he's dead? So wait, Saul's dead? My misery is over? Can we verify this? That's how I would assume. That's how I would be. I'm just being honest. But that's not David. Verse 6. I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, he replied. And there Saul was leaning on his spear. At that very moment, the chariots and the cavalry cavalry were closing in on him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me. So I answered, I'm at your service. He asked me, who are you? I told him, I'm an Amalekite. Then he begged me, stand over me and kill me for I am mortally wounded, but my life still lingers. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he couldn't survive. I took the crown that was on his head and the armband that was on his arm, and I brought them to here to my Lord. We have a little bit of a problem here. We have two different accounts of Saul's death. If we go back to 1 Samuel 31, it says that when the battle intensified against Saul, the archers found him severely wounded, and Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through with it, or these uncircumcised men will come and run me through and torture me. But his armor bearer wouldn't do it because he was terrified. Then Saul took his sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his own sword and died with them. So we have two accounts of Saul's dying, and they're different from each other. So we've got to do something with this, right? First of all, the writer of 1 Samuel tells us, really in no uncertain terms, he died at his own hands. It's clear there isn't any ambiguity here that maybe... He fell on his sword, and we don't know what happened. It says he fell on his sword, and he died, right? But according to this guy, Saul wasn't fully dead. He was only mostly dead. Some of you, okay. Look who knows so much. He's only mostly dead. Princess Bride, go watch it later. But that's what this guy is saying. He's saying he's, he wasn't dead. He was only mostly dead. And this guy, the Amalekite, was gracious enough to finish the job, put him out of his misery, so to speak. Now, David doesn't know any better. He doesn't have 1 Samuel telling him what to do. So what does he do with it? What do we do with it? We could decide to believe this guy's testimony, and, and perhaps Saul didn't finish the job, and we'd have to contend with this, the fact that 1 Samuel gives a different story. But our biggest clue here is who's telling the story. Let me read it again. When he turned around and saw me, that's Saul, he called out to me, so I answered, I'm at your service. And he asked me, 
who are you? Saul asked him, who are you? He said, I'm an Amalekite. Amalekites. There's some irony here. These were the people that God told Saul to eradicate back in 1 Samuel. In fact, this is where God went so far as to say to Saul, kill them all, men, women, children, livestock, all of it. It's a very tough section of Scripture to understand, but we have to understand this. God knows everything. We have to understand that. And in 1 Samuel, it says this, in 1 Samuel, uh, it says that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And this is true. So when God makes a call, whether we understand it or not, his call is the right call because he sees what we don't see. And the Amalekites, they were terrorists. They, weren't, they, they didn't just go and fight in battles against other soldiers. They would attack the weak. And they've always been at war with God's children. They've always been at war with Israel. They've always been a problem. In fact, David just got done fighting Amalekites because what did they do? They attacked his town when no soldiers were there and took the women and children and did Lord knows what with them. And he had to fight to get them back. That's the Amalekites. Time and time again throughout Scripture and even today, we see the rotten effect of Amalekites, the bloodshed, the murder of the innocent, etc., and in God's supernatural, perfect foreknowledge, he knew the Amalekites will always be a cause of destruction and slaughtering of people. Years ago, we, did a, a, we went through the book of Esther. And in the book of Esther, you have uh, Esther is Jewish and she's in the king's harem. So she's his king's wife. And Haman is one of the king's right-hand guys. He hates the Jewish people. And so he arranges in kind of a backwards kind of a way to have, to, really to commit genocide, to kill all the Jewish people in the nation of Persia. And that's what the book of Esther is about, is how they get out of that situation. Well, Haman was an Agagite. Say that 10 times fast. An Agagite. Agagite is a name after Agag, the king of the Amalekites. So even all the way up in Esther, we have an Amalekite, or an Agagite, if you, it's fun to say, you should look in the mirror someday and say it. An Agagite who's trying to commit genocide against all the Jewish people. These are the kinds of people that they are, and God saw that, and he saw an opportunity for Saul to take out this situation, and he didn't. Now, there would be a strange irony if it was an Amalekite that actually did kill Saul. It's actually kind of fun to think about when you, when you really think about it right? But that's just the problem we have. Can we trust an Amalekite? How do we trust an Amalekite? We don't. We don't trust Amalekites. <laughs> and what I want to, I just want to take a minute and bring close to home today is we may not have Amalekites that we're fighting in the United States at this time in history, but the Amalekites in many ways were a symbol of the flesh. The Apostle Paul talks about the flesh versus the spirit in our lives. The flesh is our sinful nature based on physical, real physical needs. My flesh desires food. I've got to eat. Got to eat to live. But if I live to eat, that's my flesh. You got me? Sleeping with a woman. I'm just like any other man, but if I sleep with a woman that's not my wife, that's the flesh. Or if I look at another woman, 
That's the flesh. You get me? So the flesh is, is something that can twist and distort real good things, and we have an appetite for that, and the flesh is a lot like the Amalekites. Uh, the Apostle Paul says we've got to put to death the flesh. Jesus said something like this in Matthew chapter 5, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I just want you to see how that verse is almost as difficult to take as the verse where God says you've got to annihilate all the Amalekites. You've got to cut it off. You've got to cut it out. If you don't, it's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy you. Right? When we don't deal with our flesh, our flesh deals with us. And it's just like those Amalekites. Our flesh will cause destruction and is at war with us as a child of God. I want you to understand the principle here. It's the same, right? And we've got to cut it off. You're like, Pastor, do I need to cut off my hand? It's to make a point. It's to do whatever you've got to do to end those, those things in your life. Now, here's a question. I'm obviously insinuating that he's lying. Why would he lie? It says, so I stood over him and I killed him because... I knew that after he had fallen, he couldn't survive. I took the crown that was on his head and the armband that was on his arm, and I brought it here to you. He wanted to get rewarded, right? He absolutely wanted to get rewarded, and David doesn't know any better. Again, we have the, we have the, um, the advantage of knowing things David doesn't, but he had a selfish motive, and he was lying just like any other Amalekite would, and he wanted to, to gain something from this. Let's go to verse 11. Then David took a hold of his clothes and tore them. And all the men with him did the same. They mourned, wept, and fasted until evening for those who died by the sword for Saul, his son Jonathan, the Lord's people in the house of Israel. So he mourns the death of Saul. Remember what I said? He, he might be giddy. He's not giddy. He mourns the death of Saul. Why would you mourn the death of the person who is trying to kill you for over the last 10 years? It doesn't make sense. I want to talk about this more later in the message, but I, see, I think one thing we're seeing here is the heart of Jesus. But Saul was at one point like a father to David. In fact, there were a couple times that Saul had these lucid moments where he, he stopped trying to kill David for a minute and he was crying, you're like my son, right? So Saul, at one, there, at one, it wasn't always like that with Saul and David. It started good until Saul decided to throw a spear at him, right? That's generally not a good thing to do to someone you love. But Jonathan was also his best friend. Jonathan was also his best friend. So he's mourning for Jonathan. He's also mourning for the entire nation of Israel because if David's to be king, there's not much left for him to rule over right now because Saul failed as a king and David, and, and David didn't have... The, it was all owned by the Philistines by this point. Now, I want to just make a, a, another point about Saul. And this, we'll see this again next week. But what I think is remarkable about how David handles Saul, and this is going to maybe make you cringe to hear this, so just prepare yourself. David didn't cancel Saul. David did not participate 
in cancel culture. He doesn't cancel, so he doesn't just write him off and try to erase him from history. What we learn and what we'll even see more next week is that the wisdom this world so desperately needs is to stop canceling people and start learning from them, right? Because all of us probably have some imperfections in our lives that we would rather be remembered for the good than the bad. Anybody know what I'm talking about? When we cancel a person, particularly one from our history because of their shortcomings, according to today's standards, that's actually called presentism. It's judging someone based on things they may not have known. And David does a perfect, he is a perfect example of celebrating the right things and learning from the wrong things. He doesn't just write them off. And, and this is part of having a, a, a heart after God because God does the same thing for you and I. When God looks at us and we're in Christ, look at me. When God looks at you and you're in Christ, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see, nor does he keep record, nor will he ever cancel you. Praise God for that. Am I right? And David doesn't do this, and we've got to stop doing that. We're not going to learn anything if we keep trying to erase history. But I think also at some point in the morning, something occurred to David. And we see this kind of turn here. In verse 13, David inquired of the young man who had brought him the report, where are you from? I'm the son of a resident alien, he said. I'm an Amalekite. And I think he heard that Amalekite, and he might have missed it before. And all of a sudden, David remembered, I just got done fighting off some of your people because they took my women, they took my children, they took my livestock, and they took advantage of all of it. David, I think, is putting the pieces together. And that's why what happens next happens. Verse 14, David questioned him. How is it that you are not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed, Saul? Then David summoned one of his servants and said, come here and kill him. The servant struck him and he died. For David said to the Amalekite, your blood is on your own head because your own mouth testified against you by saying, I killed the Lord's anointed. Irony here. The guy thought he was going to get rewarded. <laughs> he got the reward, but not the one he was looking for. Right? He said, it's your own mouth that makes you guilty. You went after the Lord's anointed. You should have been, had the fear of God in you not to do that. And now you're going to pay. He defends Saul. <laughs> He's still calling Saul the Lord's anointed. He's showing us the heart of God. He mourns for Saul, just like Jesus mourned for Israel. Remember that? He would look out and be moved by compassion. And he would mourn over the people who were about to crucify him. See, David is a type of Jesus. He's a type of Christ in the Old Testament. And I love in the recap video that we played, 
how it says in 1 Samuel, it's kind of a character study of Saul and David. It really is. And, and the video, the guy in the video was not wrong. It's good to look at both of them and try to be like David, right? But I've said it before, and I'll remind us again. We're not the hero of our own stories. And when we look at people like David in Scripture, particularly David, we need to remember something about him. We like to put ourselves in his shoes because he's the hero, David and Goliath, etc. But when we're really taking an honest look at ourselves in the mirror, at least our starting point, we're a lot more like Saul. And we need a David. Because if David is like Jesus, then we can't be David. Only Jesus can be Jesus. Sure, we want to be like David. Why? Because then we'd be like Jesus, right? And this is why I'm, I'm just, I get really uncomfortable in Samuel because of the similarities in my life, or at least in my experience that I've had with Saul. It's uncomfortable sometimes to allow Scripture to confront you. It's uncomfortable. James says when you look at Scripture, it's like looking into a mirror, and it's not comfortable. It's not like you like what you see. Danya and I were at, I think, Marshall's the other day, and they had um, all these, these mirrors that, like, magnify your face. <laughs> and I was bored. <laughs> so I was... <laughs> Anya came around the corner, I'm like this, and one of these mirrors, she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, why does anybody want to see this kind of detail on their face? This is terrible. I had no idea. I need to start wearing makeup. <laughs> anybody know those mirrors? James says looking at scripture is a lot like that. And it's not comfortable. And it uncovers things that need to be uncovered. So when I say I see a little bit of Saul in myself, I don't like that. But now I can do something about it. I could go to Jesus. Who died for me. Who mourned over me. You know this? He mourned over Israel. He mourned over the lost. He still mourns over the lost. I have to think in all the anguish that David was going through, I, I just have to think, some of it was just the why question. Why? Why, Saul? Why didn't you turn to God? Why didn't you take the chances that you got to, to turn back to God? Why, why, if you called me your son, did you still try to kill me? Why, Saul? Why did you do this? It didn't have to be this way. I loved you. I loved you. I'm just speculating, honestly. But he was mourning and there had to be some questions in his mind that this man who was once like a father to him, his life ended tragically losing everything. Jesus loves you better than David ever loved Saul or anyone else because he's Jesus. He mourns over us when we let the flesh have its way he mourns over us. Think about that. God in heaven mourns over you. But he can help you with those things. He wants to, we have this whole account so that we know who Jesus is. All the scriptures from start to beginning, the Old Testament, New Testament, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, all point us 
to one person, and that's Jesus. And we need him in our lives. And we need his help to crucify the flesh. And we need his help to be restored. Let's pray. Worship team, would you come? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Which reminds us where we really are with you. God, that without you, we're lost. Without you, we're beholden to sin. Without you, our flesh would have the best of us. And maybe this morning, Lord, there's some this morning that are are here and, and they know that's where they are. They've allowed the flesh to have its way and it's starting to bring destruction. And today, the message today is clear. You're drawing them back into you by your grace and mercy to repentance. You want everyone here to know, according to Romans chapter 8, when we run to you, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Even like the psalm that we read in worship, Psalm 91, when we take our refuge in you, no harm will befall. But that's it, Lord. We've got to come to you. We've got to give you our lives. We've got to do the things Saul didn't do. And we do want to be more like David. With your eyes closed for a moment, you say this morning, Pastor, yeah, I'm in a way where the, you know, the proverbial Amalekites are having their way in my life, my flesh. It might be a specific sin that you know. It's like your little pet sin, maybe only you know about. That you just think, no big deal, I'm just going to keep doing it. God sees that. And it's not arms folded anger. It's mourning over what destruction you'll be bringing on yourself that he has for you. He doesn't want that for you. It doesn't have to be that way. You say, Pastor, that's me. And I'm encouraged today when I see the heart of David because I know that's the heart of Jesus for me. Say, that's me today, Pastor. Will you pray for me? Would you just lift your hand? Amen. Praise God. Yeah. That's me. Maybe, maybe there's someone in your life like Saul. <laughs> you'd love to say you'd be like David and honor that person despite how they've been towards you. But you've been in your heart vengeful, vengeful, spiteful. You're saying, man, if that person passed away, I definitely wouldn't mourn their death. I would be singing songs. But that's not good for my heart. I need God to help me with my heart today towards that person. If that's you, would you raise